0: I draw your attention back to God's holy word found in Ephesians 4 this morning. Ephesians 4. We'll read 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the unity that we have as a result of this salvation. This salvation that is the work of you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work of each member of this triune God in accomplishing for us and doing for us what we have no ability to do for ourselves, for making us new creatures, for uniting us to one body In one spirit, and to give us one glorious hope. Holy Spirit, teach us this morning from your word. Lord, we ask great things. We have one who is able. And we thank you for it. It's in your Son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Shared traits or commonalities are always things that we look for in those around us, isn't it? Uh, We feel a bit more comfortable uh, if we're around other people or to be around those with whom we share traits or where there's commonality of things that we do or that we enjoy. This is always the case. There's also a reason that we, this is one of the reasons that we also fall into cliques. You see this in work, you see this in uh, families even, and unfortunately you see this in churches. Uh, It can be a devastating thing. I remember back in school, it was a long time ago for me now. Some of you will say it's been a lot longer for you, but it sure feels like a long time for me. Where for the most part, uh, the division that you see, these cliques... Are based on shared commonalities different groups of students and in these groups are most often arranged by things that they're involved with uh, very very few times would there be a crossover in these different groups that tend to uh, culminate together and come together uh, you had the athletes you had the brains you had the art type people And then you'd often have a group who were kind of on the outskirts that didn't really belong to any of those groups. You might and and often would see even subdivisions within some of those groups. And some of those subdivisions would be based on other shared commonalities. Maybe financial status. Could be whether they were male or females within those larger groups. Maybe the haves and the have-nots was often one that we saw uh, at school. You, you might have some of these subgroups that, uh, that get together and, you know, they're, they're there, but there always seems to be something that causes division eventually within those groups, does there not? Always. Trouble arises when we put ourselves at the center Of those who we have some sense of unity with. Pride, which in reality is nothing more than self-worship, the I being important, is the chief cause of disunity in most every case or breakdown of a union. Think about almost any conflict that you've had in your whole life. Almost any conflict that I've ever had and probably that you've ever had in life was the result of someone's pride or everyone's pride is probably at the very center of it. Conflict in marriage, conflict in families, conflict in the workplace, conflict on teams, always pride at the center. Is this not true in your experience? Someone wanting to lift themselves up. Someone wanting to be the center of attention. Someone wanting it to be all about them. Or defending themselves against someone else. To be the most important. To draw all attention to themselves. And battling against those who are seeking to do the same thing. Pride. Pride. Think back to what we read last week in Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, 19-21, we have a list of the, the works or the fruits, if you will, of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And Paul says, I warn you. As I warned you before, those that, do, those that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is pride and self-importance not at the very center of almost every single one of those things listed in the works of the flesh? So I would contend to you this morning that unity cannot and will not last to those who are in the flesh. Will not happen. Is it any wonder that Paul, when he begins chapter 4 of this epistle to the the Ephesians, would begin with Paul begging his readers to walk worthy in a manner worthy of their calling and to bear with one another in love with humility, gentleness, and patience? There is wisdom in in this that Paul was inspired to write. Basically, he is stating to them, don't do what is natural to you. Don't do what's natural to your fleshly desires, but do those things that are not natural. Do that which is spiritual, because the flesh cannot maintain a lasting unity. It cannot do it. That's why Paul calls us to, some, to do something different. What does he call it? He calls it the unity of the spirit. As the redeemed of the Lord now has residing the residing influence of the spirit in this new creation that is made upon regeneration. It's not just the works of the flesh anymore. There is something new. There is these things called the fruits of the holy spirit which he tells us about further on in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. These are good things, and they're born of the Spirit. These things are not natural to the flesh. They are fruits of the Spirit. Now Paul is going to lay before us in our text this morning what the actual unity that he's talking about here is composed of. He's going to lay out for us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit exactly what these things are and around which this unity is is maintained and and which is is a reality in the body of Christ. But before we get started, uh, there's one more thing that I want us to see and keep in mind as we go through this. Uh, Most of this text that that we're going to be dealing with This morning will be verse 4. I had wanted to cover verses 4 through 6, and it's just not going to happen. It's just not, uh, we're not going to have time to do that. But what he is getting at here, and what I want you to be cognizant of as we go through this, is that Paul is drawing attention to the Trinity here in verses 4 through 6 to the three distinct persons of the one triune God. You will remember, I trust, when we, when we first made mention of this in the previous chapters of Ephesians, uh, in this first half of this epistle, chapters 1 through 3, that, that have much to do with the doctrine and truth regarding what God has done. And Paul makes mention of the three persons of the Trinity all throughout that first section. And now as he comes to this second half of the book, of Ephesians, this epistle to the Ephesians, he is getting more to the practical teaching. Remember, we said he doesn't leave doctrine, but he builds upon doctrine and shows what flows out of that doctrine and the work of the triune God, which began before the foundation of the world and will continue until its completion. So in the start of this second half, I want you also to note that this is being brought back to our attention as we come to verses 4 through 6, one spirit in verse 4, one Lord in verse 5, and one God in verse 6. Please take note of this. We serve one God, but three persons in one Godhead. All working with different roles, you might say. But all in agreement, all in unity, all in one accord, together accomplishing the will and the purpose and the plan of this triune God. This is the perfect unity that we as the body of Christ are called to mirror. That's where you see perfect unity, is in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let's look at our text here this morning at verse 4 of chapter 4 of this epistle to the Ephesians. As we look directly at our text this morning, let's first address what Paul says in the first two verses, excuse me, the first two words of verse 4. There is. There is. You'll recall that in chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 4, Verse 3, Paul says, he doesn't say, eager to establish unity. He doesn't say, eager to build up unity. What does he say? Eager to maintain unity. Just as he states here in verse 4, there is. Not, there should be. Not, you have to... You have to make it this way. He says, there is. There is. Paul is telling his readers, this is not something to attain to. This is not something that you must fabricate. He says, there is. It already exists among you. There is unity in these things that he is going to list out. It is already that which unites you. And with all that is in you, he tells us, be eager to maintain it. Be eager to maintain it. Paul deals with what already is, and he lists out for us in the following three verses, verses four through six, a sevenfold unity of the body of Christ, which is the church. Remember back in verse 22 and 23 of Ephesians 1 where Paul tells us and he put all things under his feet and gave him that is Christ as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So once again Paul is saying to those who wrote this that he wrote this epistle to and you, and we have to remember that this group was once a very divided group. We won't go into this again. But This was a very divided group, primarily made up of of Gentile Christians, used to hostility and division. And Paul is writing to them, and he's saying, "There there is a unity that exists for all the body of Christ. We can't forget either that many of Paul's letters are written to address disunity that crept into the church there was a prideful spirit that had crept in through the remainders of indwelling sin, those passions and desires of the flesh with which the Christian must contend and go to war with every single day. The church in Galatia, for instance, which had some who would bring back those things that Christ broke down, those Jewish ordinances that were abolished in the cross of Christ. He dealt with that in Galatians. Let me put before you the outline in one of my study Bibles this morning for for 1 Corinthians and what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians with the church. The first point in the outline is division over Christian preachers. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13. This is the only portion that we'll read from here regarding this, but 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Disunity in the church at Corinth over its previous preachers. The answer to this, if you turn over a couple chapters to 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7, through Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul's seeking to break down what was causing the disunity and say, no, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. We were members of the body given certain gifts, but it's God who gives the growth. It's not us. Bringing them back to unity. Well, the second point that the study Bible outline that I have was the church at Corinth was divided over sexual immorality and legal issues. The third point, marriage and divorce, The fourth point, food offered to idols. Fifth point, head coverings. Sixth point, social snobbery at the Lord's table. And the seventh point was contention over spiritual gifts. All these things of disunity are born of the flesh, for they seek to divide. Where there is unity. Paul is laboring to tell these Ephesians, stop living in the flesh. There is in the Spirit unity, and he lists out what it is that they are united in, and it is a sevenfold unity. I don't want to go overboard here with making something out of numbers, but there is something about the number seven in Scripture completeness, fullness perfection what paul is saying here is there is perfect unity in the redeemed of the lord as he brings out this sevenfold unity so he starts there is one body paul says there is one body there are many great analogies in scripture for the church it's compared to a kingdom a family, a temple or dwelling place for God at the end of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Chapter 5 compares it to a bride. But here in our text, it is most appropriate to describe it as a body. A body works together. Although it's composed of many different parts, it grows together. It grows out of a single cell. It grows. It's organic in its growth. It's not assembled as you would assemble a machine where you take a part here that just connects to another part or just interfaces with another part. The body grows in such a way I can't really tell where my hand starts and my arm ends or where my foot starts and my leg ends or my torso attaches to the legs. It is such a organic System. in the way that it grows, in the way that it works, that being able to tell where one ends and the other begins is almost an impossibility. Body grows by the multiplication of cells as the church grows in such a way as the, as the message of the gospel spreads and the Lord makes use of His people in spreading the gospel and unites another and another and another new life being created there exists one body there are not multiple bodies of Christ there is not a body here and a body there it is all the same body and if one is a true believer he is part of that unified body there there is one body one I believe wholeheartedly in the local assembly of believers and membership in that local assembly of joining yourself as a believer to a local church body or probably more appropriately, an assembly. I believe that this is biblical and I believe it's right to do. And if you ever have questions about that, I would be happy, and I know dad would too, to sit and talk about this type of membership but this is not what Paul is talking about there is one body that Paul is talking about here there is one body which the believe the totality of believers the redeemed of the lord the called out members even of this local assembly and that local assembly and the one over there they are all members of the one body it's not a jewish body of christians it's not a gentile body of christians there's not a chinese body of christians and an english body of christians there is not a rich body and a poor body they are all members if they are the redeemed of the lord they are members of one body one there is unity in the one body The Jewish converts work together as the foot to the leg or the hand to the arm with the Gentile converts, seamlessly joined together to be directed by the head which is Christ, moving under the direction of Christ, at the will of Christ, and for the glory and the honor and the purpose for that which Christ directs, the different parts of the body, working together to accomplish his ultimate purpose. This is not necessarily what we would call the visible church as we see it around. Those who have joined themselves to local membership. There are some within those church bodies who may not be a member of the body of Christ. They are an alien appendage, we'll call it an alien body part. It's almost like it's just been Velcro attached to that which is actually a member of the body. So this is a truly, not in the Roman Catholic sense, but in what the apostles, what the some of the creeds call the Holy Catholic Church. It is a universal church. It is not made up of a church here or a church there that are on the membership rolls. It is all of those who are truly the redeemed of the Lord. No matter where they are. They are members of the one body. This body is made up of those who lived long ago, who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. It's made up of those who were there when Christ walked on the earth, those that we read about earlier from Luke 24 who saw the Messiah with their own physical eyes it's those of us today who look back on the Messiah that came, that died that was buried, that rose again and that ascended and it's made up of those who are still yet to come all of them united romans 12:5 says that so we though many are one body in christ and individually members of one another turn with me to 1 corinthians 12:18 We'll read down through verse 27. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary... But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. There is one body, one. And there is one spirit. Paul tells us there is one spirit which unites us to Christ, which makes us part of the body. This is not spirit as in a group of people having the same affections, although that goes along with it. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. This is the one Holy Spirit that each and every believer has in common. The Holy Spirit who animates us, who convicts us of a sin enlightens us, teaches us, makes us alive, who brings us into this one body, the church, who is the comfort, this spirit, is the comfort to the redeemed of the Lord, and who gives us understanding, who opens our eyes and unites us to the vine, to Christ, so that we might bear fruit. This is the spirit that is being discussed here by Paul. One of the ways in which we are united. One body, one spirit. The members of the body all come from different places and time, different backgrounds, different experiences. Each and every one is brought into salvation by the working of this one spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity. Not several spirits, but God the Holy Spirit, the one who indwells the saints, the omnipresent spirit who lives and indwells each and every believer in each and every united member of the body, uniting them under the head, which is Christ. This is the one who Christ promised. Would come in a very difficult passage one I find to be absolutely amazing I can't imagine having been one of those people who walked with Christ for him to turn to them toward the end of his ministry and said it's good that I go how is that good? how is it good that Christ would leave us? But in John 16, verse 4 through 8, he says to his disciples, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, to the Father. I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. My Lord is going away. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the one Spirit that unites the church. just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Their call had brought to them and secured for them a hope which is firmly, firmly grounded and established in the promises of eternal God. It is the hope which we have been given an earnest of or a seal of as described back in Ephesians 1, verse 13 through 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. We have already been given a foretaste of this hope through the sealing of the one Spirit. If we could only grasp what Paul is telling us here. If we could only have the minds to understand it. Thankfully, we have the Spirit to help us with this. This all works together to unite us to Christ and to each other. There is unity. Can you see this? There is one body, one spirit, and one hope. Hope in our language today has been a word weakened by careless usage and does not bear the weight that it once did. It is a sad thing the way Language changes. Now when someone uses the word hope, it is usually in reference to, and we've talked about this before, but it's usually in reference to something that is wishful thinking. Something that is uncertain. Oh, I hope that the weather is nice tomorrow. Or I hope one day to visit Hawaii. Or I hope one day to go to Scotland. Wishful thinking. This is not biblical hope. The hope of the redeemed, the Lord, is not wishful thinking, but it is a sure and certain longing based upon the ability of the one in whom hope is grounded. We have been given the first fruits of this, according to the promises of God who cannot lie for it is against his character to do such a thing. It's based upon a God who is and does according to what we read earlier in Ephesians 3 verse 20, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church, in the body, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So many times we see the ground for our hope in Scripture, the fulfilled promises of the Word of God. In the garden what was promised? Now this is a negative promise. In the garden, Genesis 216 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And what Adam? What happened to Adam when he ate of that tree which God forbid him to eat? Did God not fulfill His word? Is Adam walking around today? Adam died instantly spiritually. And he went on in due time to die physically. God was sure to His promise. He fulfilled that which He told Adam He would do if he ate of the tree. Genesis 18. Excuse me. Let me back up. We have an obscure promise to Abraham and Sarah that she who was barren would give birth to a son. And both Abraham and Sarah laughed at this promise. So far outside the realm of being humanly possible. Right? Genesis seventeen fifteen through seventeen and God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her, I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He laughed. And in Genesis 18, 9 through 14, they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So she laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn? After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old?'" Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. They laughed at the thought that these promises could be fulfilled. Yet God did what He said He would do. God accomplished his promise according to his word. In Genesis 21, 1 through 7, we read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son of his old age. In Joshua, oh we read so much of the fulfillment of promises in Joshua. In Joshua twenty one, forty one through forty three through forty five, excuse me, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. He gave it to them. And they took possession of it. And they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all the enemies had withstood them. These were nations mightier than they were. Not one of them had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And Joshua, we're told... Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Later on in Joshua 23, verse 14, And now Joshua's about to die. He's an old man. He's about done. He said, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed. Of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you, all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Not one. I don't want to be overbearing with looking at this, but I want to look a few, at a few more passages so we may truly see what it is that gives us this one hope, which belongs to our call. This is the foundation of the believer. And at the same time, it can be a consolation to those who the Spirit is convicting of their sin who are not yet part of the one body if they are under conviction of sin if the if the spirit of god is working within them to show them their great need then they too can rest on the promises of god and have a hope that one day they might be joined to the one body with the one spirit and have one hope Amen. first kings 8 12 through 20 Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and he blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt... I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my, ma- my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you dwell. you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house." But your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. And Solomon says, Now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that He made. In the New Testament, something as simple as this. In Luke eight twenty-two through 25 Now one day He got into a boat with His disciples and He said to them, Let us... Go across to the other side of the lake. Something as simple of a promise as that, as a statement. That they're going to go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went in and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Why should they have had faith? Because he told them they were going to the other side. And they marveled. They were afraid, and they marveled, and they said to one another, Who then is this that He commands even the winds and water, and they obey Him? In Mark 10, 32 through 34, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed Him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, He began to tell them what was to happen to Him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after these three days, He will rise. Now three days has passed since they crucified Christ. And we read in Mark 16, 1 through 6, When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. This is the third day. They went to the tomb. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us? from the entrance of the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. Oh, friends, there is one hope which unites us. A hope grounded in the fulfillments of the promises of God. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Every rejection... Of Christ by man. Every grief, every sorrow, when the spear pierced him and the nails were placed through him, when the wrath of God and even the weight of Christ's own body crushed him. Hanging on a tree, every wound was borne by Christ that he might be the very substitute promised hundreds and hundreds of years before it took place in time. For forgiveness and cleansing for atonement, yes, praise God. But also that we might see that all the promises of God in Him are yes. Remember what we read in our congregational reading Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he, Christ, after his resurrection said to them, those two men on the road to Emmaus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Christ himself, speaking of himself, says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. All of the promises have their yes in Christ. You want to know where hope comes from? It's right there. That is the grounding and the foundation of our hope. Look at what Christ endured that the promise of God might be fulfilled. We could spend years looking at these things, talking and meditating on these things. We will spend an eternity, thankfully, praising the one who endured all these things. This is not wishful thinking. Our hope is not wishful thinking. It's not some fanciful daydream. This is the one hope that unites us. That the promises of God are still being worked out. And the one spirit who has sealed the promises for the one body in the one hope is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's our hope. Do you see what unites us? And why Paul is urging you and I to walk worthy of the calling and be eager to maintain the unity of the body. What can be accomplished with such a unity and such a hope? We live in a very, very dark time. An evil generation is where we find ourselves. There's an absolute and utter rejection of truth, rejection and open hostility of God that I feared would one day come, but I had no clue it would be as open and just out there as it is right now. As I was quickly eating breakfast this morning, I turned on a message. Paul Washer was preaching at a church, and, and something he said struck me, and I'll have to paraphrase it because I can't, I can't honestly quote it. Um, I was in a, in a hurry to get back to studying this morning. And, um, but he said something to the effect of this. In the midst of first century darkness, we have an opportunity... We have an opportunity to display first century courage. Well we've got to ask ourselves, how can we display that courage when the day is so dark? We have one spirit who is able to work in us that we may see the one hope that we have. This one hope that belongs to our calling, to our call. We are called out. That's what the church is. The ecclesia, the called out ones we're called out of the world to stand against the world, to stand for Christ, to stand for Christ's truth, to stand for His Word, to proclaim salvation against the world. God will either use it to save them or He'll use it to just further their damnation in hell. That's not our responsibility. It's been given to us To proclaim it. I can stand. We can stand united against all the world and all the hosts of wickedness with this one hope. Do you not see, brothers and sisters, what do we have? To fear. Only be strong and courageous. We, the body, the church, the body of Christ, the redeemed of the Lord, we have no fear of hell. None. We've already been given the down payment of our inheritance. We have true hope. We have a real hope. What can the world do to us? What what can it do? What do we fear from it? That it's going to send me to my home early? That it's going to hasten my homecoming? That I might a few days earlier than expected, be in the presence of Almighty God? What fear is that? I have hope. I have a hope that's grounded in a reality. The reality of one who over and over and over and over again fulfilled his promises. Who promised he'll never leave me and forsake me. Go through the water with me. Go through the fire with me. Wherever I go, there He is. How can I get away from Him? Oh, that we might stand in the hope of our calling united as one body in one Spirit who strengthens and upholds us and unites us to Christ and one to another. Lifting each other up. Urging each other on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for unity. May you give us grace that we might fully understand this. That we might be eager to maintain this unity. That we might ponder and meditate what it is that this union is. Lord, didn't have time to look at all of it this morning, but there's so much just in the fact that you've united us in one body, with one spirit. And with one hope, Lord, may we be strong and courageous. Be with us, Lord. We know you are. Strengthen us, give us boldness. Boldness to proclaim your truth to a world that is hostile to it. Lord, that in some way you might use this, the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of this message to save those who are perishing. Lord, we thank You. In Your name we pray. Amen.